My name is Mary Conquest. I'm your host for Safety Labs by Slice, the podcast where we explore the human side of safety to support safety professionals. We move past regulations and reportables to talk about the core skills of safety leadership, empathy, influence, trust, rapport, in other words, the soft skills that help you do the hard stuff. Joel Neely is the Safety and Risk Manager at Bruce Automotive Dealerships in Western Nova Scotia. His path to safety is a bit unconventional, which we'll get to in a minute, and he's here to talk about strategies for building rapport with employees. So you told me in our earlier chat that rapport is the most important consideration for an EHS person. Why is that? I learn a lot from from the folks we work with, and I'm able to... um find out the, the small details that end up fixing the bigger problems. A lot of times the, the guys on the floor, they, they know the real issues. Uh, we think we have a pretty good idea about them, but um, they really know what's up. And when you're down there and you talk to the guy that maybe doesn't get a lot of FaceTime with someone from, you know, the executive team or something like that, they really appreciate it. And then that's, that's how we, that's how we fix our problems. They appreciate it. And, and that's really kind of the core of rapport, isn't it? Which is trust. So I, I hinted at your at your sort of route into OHS. So lots of OHS people go through formal training, diploma, certificate programs. You took a different route. Tell us a little bit about that. And you have already hinted, but why it gives you a different perspective uh, from some of your safety colleagues. And also, <laughs> were there any specific advantages or disadvantages to your journey? Yeah, so I, I grew up on a farm and forestry operation um, in, in uh, Nova Scotia here in Canada. And um, my father was always really strong on safety, which was kind of nice. And uh, we always had a big transportation background. We had some trucks and stuff like that. And uh, so I took a job at a big factory when I was when I was younger, producing paper. And they, they closed down and um, they offered us job retraining. So I took a training as a truck driver in Canada here. It's a 12-week course. I did that for 10 years. It was great. I mean, I got to see a lot of the United States, a lot of Canada, a lot of cool spots I never would have seen growing up in kind of rural Nova Scotia. And it's a lot of work. So then I was like, man, there's got to be a better way. So I started joining all the OHS teams. And then I took a job as a professional trainer at a company called Commercial Safety College in, in uh, Nova Scotia probably about 150 kilometers away from where, where I live and became a driver trainer. And then we created a new type of driver training course where we basically started at companies and we were able to bring people in who had, you know, no experience ever in a truck. They were never a part of it. We, from day one, you know, we basically opened the door for them and showed them what the inside of a cab looked like. And after eight weeks, they were ready to take their test. And then they did another four weeks on the road with a, with another coach and that program went really, really well for three or four years. And then um, the company that I was teaching at offered me the position uh, running their safety program in-house. So I was able to move into the office I was kind of looking for. I did that for a number of years and um, kind of started building a little bit of a name around the, the valley. And, and uh, the uh, Bruce Group decided to create a position as they had uh, grown exponentially over the last couple of years and were kind of at a point where they needed someone. And a friend of mine worked there and he went to their, their HR manager and he said, listen, I know a guy, he's not looking to move. But anyways, they called me and uh, we chatted and the rest is history. I was able to come in here, um, kind of work my way up. I, I definitely wouldn't encourage this path to everyone. I mean, it took <laughs> it took 20 years and uh, it is not easy. I find, find I've had to fight for everything over the years and really probably prove myself more than 
than if I had have gone to school. And and I will say I went to college and took business when I first got to school. I was an honors distinction student. I mean, I was I, I had done well in school. I just didn't feel like going on, you know, anymore in a post secondary education. So. Yeah, no, and when I said no training, I I meant sort of specific to safety. So you talked about some of the disadvantages. What what do you think the advantages are of coming up the way that you did? So we have a bunch of car dealerships, um, and there's a lot of of characters, a lot of really great people that work for us, uh, differing backgrounds, and and it allows me, you know, I can walk in and uh, a lot of the guys know who I am or are pretty vocal, and I walk in and I can get a little bit of respect. I find that sometimes uh, your white hard hat and a clipboard isn't isn't always re- as respected. I mean, it definitely has its place, um, but they 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 seem to really gravitate towards me. Um, everybody in the company says that there's no one else here that talks to more people in the run of a week than than me. So that's kind of a I like that. I mean, that's that's what I'm here to do. So. Yeah, I, I had that uh, impression before. You mentioned the person who talks to the most people. Um, why do you think that's important? In this job, if you're not there talking to the people that are doing the job, if you're just like sort of sending down information, like, I mean, obviously we have a hierarchy that we follow it through the fixed ops managers and stuff. But I mean, I have to be standing beside them uh, when we're doing meetings and, and, and we have to have each other's respect, but also the ability where I can just walk in, open any door and and talk is huge because they, they just we've struggled in the past with, with trying to change the culture. And this this seems to be the best way to do it right now. I mean, it's working. When you position yourself as one of the guys, so that's kind of metaphorically speaking, it sounds like you're finding that people listen to you more. Are there any risks with that? Like, do you think there's any danger of losing authority in anyone's eyes or? Yeah, that's huge. I mean, you have to be really, really careful. Um, I'm pretty particular, like with social media stuff, you don't want to be, friends with everyone you have to be kind of picky a little bit you have to distance yourself from time to time and i think folks know that that that's that's kind of where we are um i'm not going to go out and and you're not going out and partying with it with type of folks and stuff like that unless you know what i mean like you have to be distant but but still being able to you know stand there while people are on lunch break or whatever or having a casual conversation and be able to you know have someone look at you and say hey man what do you think that's that's huge right so i mean this morning we we had a pretty major blizzard over the weekend so i showed up at a dealership for some ohs meetings at at uh, nine o'clock this morning and uh, everybody was shoveling snow for so for an hour and a half we shoveled snow and then we uh, and then we had our meeting so i mean you, you get out and you get the shovel and you you dig in literally. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it sounds like there's a bit of a sweet spot between, you know, sort of being close, being sort of one of them, but not quite being so close that you lose. I hate to use the word authority, but. But you're right. It is. I mean, you, at the end of the day, and, and I've always, I was a captain in the fire service for a long time. And I've always said there's a lot of people who want to be leaders until you have to do leadership things. And, and there's often tough conversations. Um, I mean, we obviously with COVID over the last couple of years, that's been a major topic of conversation and we've had to implement some pretty hard and fast rules and, and they've come from me and, uh, and with the backing of the executive team and uh, you know, people sometimes don't feel that they apply to them or they need to follow them and and you have to go in and lay down the law from time to time. I and mean, it's rare. Like I have such a great group of people that I work with. You don't have to worry about it too much, but sometimes you have to be the hammer. Yeah, you do have to be prepared. 
any kind of management is, you know, hard conversations is part of it. So I want to talk a little bit more about rapport or trust. And uh, I'd like to set this up a little bit. So for listeners who haven't seen the show, Ted Lasso, it's about an American that finds himself coaching a team that wants nothing to do with him. He needs to build rapport quickly. And one of the things that struck me was that very early on in this, in the show, in the relationship, he points to the angriest player, he, the one who hates him the most. He tells his assistant coach, if we're going to, and here's the quote, if we're going to make an impact here, the first domino needs to fall right inside of that man's heart. So you have talked about using this kind of strategy, identifying the leader and winning them over. Why do you think this works? Yeah, that that's been my strategy all along, and, and basically all my jobs, and and it's it's massive. So what I've always tried to do is is there's always there's two people in every room, but there's always a lot of people, but there's someone who's really quiet who knows a lot, and there's and is and is the quiet leader, the one that stands in the back and kind of you know just kind of watches, and then there's the very vocal person, and then there's usually a mix of of everyone else. So the vocal person that's your that's probably your most dangerous person. They're the ones that's that's going to incite. You know, they're either going to have your back or they're going to they're going to knock you down. One of the two, and then the second person is the one that you really, really need because that's probably the real leader, and and that's kind of what I've noticed in these groups is is uh, you know, there's always a guy that that is vocal or girl or whatever, and and but um, getting them on your side is is massive. So what I always try to do is is you go in with the backing of management, and everybody knows there's problems everywhere so so you have to be able to fix one so i kind of tell management i'm like listen guys i need i need a win i need something right off the bat so you go in you, you kind of listen to their problems and and you're like okay there's there's something here we can fix something you know easy i mean for instance i had a problem at a dealership where we had an air compressor a big you know a big air compressor that was really noisy and this the dealership's been around for a long time we had just purchased it and i walked into the dealership brand new, never met anyone in there. And, and the loud, you know, the, the, the guy that talks, he come up to me and he's like, man, you know, Mr. Safety, you're going to come in, blah, blah. And he starts kind of getting mouthy. And, and he says, you know, no one will fix this, this air compressor that's been, you know, blaring in my ear for the last 10 years that he's worked there or whatever. I said, all right, I'll fix it. So we put a, we put a room around it. We insulated the room with, with sound deadening material. And now you can stand beside it and you don't hear it. And I'll tell you right now, that guy's that guy's my best friend now. Like that, it was simple. Someone should have done it ten years ago. It cost us maybe a thousand dollars. Like it was, you know, that's the stuff that that makes the difference. And I think in this day and age, we're running into retention issues, especially amongst highly trained technicians. is is the biggest issue that most uh, most dealerships face. It's easy to find easier to find people who can sell and kind of the shiny parts of the dealership but but to find a good technician is difficult and keep them so i mean retention if that's all it took keep this to make this guy you know happy man the people that didn't do it before failed so what do you need to make these wins happen yeah it's support i think the the safety and the, and the risk management team is is the middle ground i mean you're not uh, you're not the executive team and if, if you think you are you're you're probably in the wrong gig, um, but you're just below them and you're above the general workforce. So you kind of have to realize that. So when I go to do things, I need the support of the people above me. If I'm, if I'm going to try and do something and I haven't made a, a case for it or I haven't made it a reasonable expectation of something above me, then I'm, and I go promise it to the team, 
I'm going to lose credibility. So the first thing I always try and do is I'm like, all right, this is, this is kind of the problem we're going to have. And, and, and is this something we can do? And then if you can go in and promise it and, and actually come through, that's really, that seems like that's anybody wants. It's just someone to uh, back up what they say. It's simple. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, step one is really listening in terms of what the workforce wants when you're coming in fresh, right? Listening what, especially for leaders, how do you make your case to management? Have you ever had a situation where, you know, management is like, well, that maybe they think that, you know, the noise of the air compressor is ridiculous and you should really be looking at such and such regulation scheme or how do you make that case? It's like you said before, ROI is a good thing and an ROI can be a lot of different things. I mean, it's it can be straight up money, which is easy. I mean, that's pretty easy to figure out. But I mean, we get into like retention costs and stuff like that. That's that's kind of those hidden funds. I mean, we have a team that uh, the HR team that will onboard people. I mean, it takes time. It takes you know days to do their courses and onboard them and get them comfortable. And that's all. If we have to do that all the time, that's money spent that we you know you don't really think about because it's in it's in HR salaries. And so I, I'm big on that. Is trying to if we can cut down on some of that stuff, we can sell that easily to upper management and it allows us to kind of get more of a, a help. You know, I can say, look, I, I can, I can do this for a thousand bucks and it's probably going to save us a salary, you know, later on. I don't think anyone will argue with that. Money tends to talk. And you're right. There's a lot of situations where people don't consider money in terms of either lost opportunity or money that they don't have to spend doing things like new finding new hires and that sort of thing. So you had talked, you'd mentioned to immersive versus a top-down approach. How would you define those? And why is that kind of, why is that your approach? Like, how did you come to that? Both are good. I mean, I think they work in different situations. I mean, obviously you get kind of the military style, which is your top-down, you know, you have your your boss and everybody below and everybody kind of follows the chain of command. and, And that works out really well a lot of the time. I find that in Canada, um, people like to just talk, you know, like it's, it's a very, I don't know, we're, we're kind of a vocal community and we seem to be pretty open discussions. Like, I mean, we do a lot of round tables, like a lot of, uh, you know, we'll, we'll gather everybody inside the Bay and, and ask what they think, you know, and, and allow people the opportunity to speak or, or, you know, and, and perhaps that's not the same way. So for me, probably 90% of my job is immersive where I will just, you know, you'll be working on a car or a truck or whatever, and I'll just show up beside you. And I'd be like, hey, you know, what's what's going on? And and we might just talk about, you know, the game last night or something or, or you know, and then at the end of it, they'll be like, you know, man, there's something's been kind of bugging me. Like, you know, and, and, and that's that's kind of the thing. Like, like you never I find I don't go in pushing like, you know, tell me your biggest concern right now today. I try to start start off and then and you might not even come up with anything that day. But what I've found is is I'll uh, I'll have a conversation like that. And then the next time I go back, these people will kind of search me out a little bit and they'll be like, hey, man, I've been thinking about something. And and that's that's when we're making our, our biggest gains. Right. So that's kind of the immersive approach is just getting in there. Right. I don't uh, like as much the the militaristic approach is just but that's just personal more than anything. So. Yeah. It, as you're describing it, it sounds a lot like how to deal with your teenage child. <laughs> but I mean, it's true in that you are building rapport, you're planting those seeds, you're you're gaining trust so that the next time there's an issue, that person is ready to talk to you about it. So 
And that's it. I mean, we found a lot of times that if folks aren't willing to talk, you're wasting your time. They're wasting salary on me. I mean, we have to be in there and have to be, you know, making people feel like they can talk. And that's probably one of the biggest part for me is, is people don't feel like they can speak their mind or say their worries. And we failed. So. Given your experience, do you think that the industry, the safety industry, safety management has changed from a top down to more of an immersive kind of overall? Like, obviously, there are examples of, of different styles all over the place, but are you noticing any changes or? 20 years ago, when I started in transportation, it was it was a different ball game. I mean, we we were basically thrown out on the road and um uh, you got to think back then there was there's was no Facebook cell phones. I mean, like you would cross the border into the United States. We didn't have international calling plans like for four or five days. You were basically gone. There was literally no one that was able to help you. I mean, you could use those old phone cards that we'd, we'd go to these pay phones at a truck stop and, and you type in 57 numbers and eventually you could talk to someone for four and a half minutes. But it was a whole different world back then. And and you would have, you know, every once in a while you get a communication from the company from whoever the safety manager of the day was. And and, and it would just be like a, a form, a memorandum or something. And you never knew them. You didn't know who they were, you know, especially as a long haul driver, you weren't at the office very much and you really didn't care. I don't remember any of them because they weren't memorable. <laughs> you know? Yeah, which is a good point. Yeah, and now we have so many potential surveillance communication tools that... Uh... Well, that's it. That's the change. I mean, nowadays, I think we are able to be more immersive no matter where they are. I mean, as a growing group, we're expanding all the time. Um, geographically, we're, we're going to be into a pretty pretty strong geographic area soon so that like it'll be more difficult to be a more on-the-floor presence, which is probably one of my greatest worries. And as we move into different provinces and stuff and, and like our, our management is, is aggressive and they, we are growing and that's going to be a struggle going forward for me personally. Right. So. Do you think there's an ideal ratio of safety staff or, or safety management to workforce? Yeah. And, and that's, that's exactly where we're getting into right now for, for us, like we're at 10 dealerships, which are spread over 200 kilometers. So, I mean, it's about two hours, two, two and a half hours I can drive between them, which is pretty easy. Right. But I think once it gets to the point where I can't be there, you know, three, four days a month, then I'm probably going to need some help. And, and that's for me where it'll be tougher probably to, to, uh, relinquish a little bit. I was able to have really good counterparts at my last job and I trusted them completely. So, It'll be interesting to see what we do here, but I mean, that will be the plan in the future, obviously, to, to have some more people because we're just going to get spread too thin. Yeah, I think the technologies of today just wouldn't work in that setting, right? Like if, if you were safety manager management for an office type environment, then sure, Zoom meetings, that kind of thing. But I, I don't really see an auto technician stopping <laughs> to do a Zoom call. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's, you have to be there. And, and I know going forward, like when we, we purchase more dealerships, like I'm going to be at them. And like I've kind of been mentioning to the folks, cause I mean, this year looks like it should be a good year. And, and when I've been doing meetings and, and meeting with folks lately, I'm like, look guys, like, you know, by summer, it could be away for a bit. And, and, um, you know, so I'm kind of trying to soften it a little bit because I've made such good connections with these folks that, uh, they come to kind of expect it. They'll be like, Joel, man, can you pop over this afternoon? Right. And, and 
that's not going to be able to do for a while, likely. So, yeah, I guess, and that's the situation, you know, um, picturing a safety manager in, in a giant company who's got, you know, massive staff. Would you have any tips or ideas of, of how to manage that? If, yeah, if you just physically can't walk the floor all the time, let's say you're working for a massive company. If you can't, I mean, you can't, that's it. I mean, I, I'm big on building a team where we're, we're definitely a team-based organization here where we try and I'll try and work together. I would, I would hope you could have the representative that could kind of handle your concerns. If not, then you're going to have to rely on your managers. I mean, which are great. And the ones that I work with are awesome as well, but I mean, everybody's busy, but if you have a, a receptive, you know, fixed operations manager or, or general manager that can, that can kind of step in and say, listen, this is my doors open, which they have a really good policy of that here. I mean, I don't think there's anyone that couldn't go and speak to the owner and we're, we're at 275 employees now and it's, you know, growing daily. But if, you know, even once we get into the major numbers, I think, I think the, the managers is probably, we're going to have to lay it on for a bit. I mean, you're going to be around, but it just won't be, won't be as much. So building rapport is super important. It's kind of the core of what you're talking about. And it's a, a one-on-one kind of thing. Do you also have more formal training that you develop or, or anything that, uh, yeah, more formal techniques, I guess, than, than the one-on-one conversation? Yeah, so everybody in the company has to go through a suite of courses and training depending on your position. So, I mean, like the average technician probably has to do eight or ten different courses, um, we have our, our formal OHS meetings monthly at each store and each each team, and of course we have representatives of those on from the staff and from the floor on each on each group. In Canada, they they ask you to um, obviously have more staff than management in any of the committees, so that's kind of cool, and we get a lot of good stuff from them. Um, so it's it's definitely definitely a chore though trying to get you know the representation and get people out. So so we like to feed them. That's that's the biggest thing. Plus, I like that. Feed them. Yeah, that's kind of my that's my go to as well. That's the pro tip. If you want to be a good safety manager, you get on all the OHS teams, and then you get about 10, 10 meals a month. It works out really, really well. <laughs> that's something they don't tell you about in the school. Yeah, that's a pro tip. Talk about return on investment. There, you uh, you really stretch out your salary. <laughs> that's how they hook me in. Yeah, that's free the free lunches. I can handle that. So yeah, yeah, uh, working lunches. I guess we'll call them. Yeah. So I have some questions that I ask every guest. The first one I'm going to call the University of Joel. <laughs> I do change the name depending on the guest. So I just thought we were all Joel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I only interview Joels. Nice. I get it. <laughs> if you were to develop your own safety management training curriculum, which it sounds like you have some experience in, where would you start? Like what core human skills do you think are the most important to develop in tomorrow's safety professionals? I'm going to have to go with the, with the big one for me, which is trust, uh, trust and integrity. Those are probably the, the biggest skills and traits that we need to build on. I mean, if you don't, if you build a program and no one trusts it, and no one believes it's actually going to work, you're, you're wasting your time. So for me, it's, it's we build a program that it, you know it's 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 straightforward, it, it's honest and trustworthy. It it has results, and and then we can just build from there and, and put the soft skills in. But yeah, trust is massive for me. And integrity. How do you? How would you define or how would you demonstrate that? Yeah. So there's always going to be problems. I mean, that's the that's the second part of any any safety manager's job is. I mean, obviously you're trying to 
fix problems, but you're also trying to deal with, with issues as they come. I mean, part of the job is a reactive job and part of it's proactive. So the reactive part, you have to have integrity. I mean, we are going to deal with difficult situations and anybody, I mean, in my last job, I was in transportation. It was nothing to have a driver call you that was 5,000 miles away and say, Hey, I'm upside down in a ditch. I got fuel leaking, fix the problem. And that was, you, you just had to be the person. And, and at the end of the day, someone needs to be the person. And, and that's the integrity part. People got used to knowing that, Hey, if I call Joel at two o'clock on a Sunday morning, he's going to make it okay. And that was, that's where I am with the, with the scene with this group. I mean, obviously I, I don't get as many two o'clock in the morning phone calls, which is, which is nice. <laughs> it was probably a large part of why I, why I moved away from transportation, but they know when they call that I'm going to fix the problem or, or, or find someone who can. And that's the integrity part for me. So let's turn back time for a minute. If you could travel back in time and speak to yourself at the beginning of your career, and if you could give only one piece of advice to young Joel, what do you think that would be? Nah, that's a great question. So like I said before, I did really well in school, um, came relatively easy. I did go to college. Uh, I was going to go to university, but I was like, no, I'm just going to do a small college. Did really well. I really enjoyed it. And it was a school that went until May. So it used to end in May. So in April, I can remember I was 19, 18, 19 years old, and I was sitting and I was looking out a window at the school. And I realized I had been in school since I was five years old. I got up and never went back. And um, that was probably an error. I would not encourage that. Like I likely could have passed it without doing anything for the rest of the year. Like I had really good marks. <laughs> I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. I had just, I was sitting there and I, I remember it. Like I was, I was like, man, I, I've been sitting in a classroom my entire life and I just didn't want to do it anymore. And, uh, that was that. So if I had to look back, I would probably say that waiting out that one more month probably would have been a wise thing to do So because I had to pay the loan off for the next seven years. So, yeah, that was – of all the things I've done in my life, that might not have been the, the finest. Yeah, but anyways. But you know what? It led you to where you are now, so. Yeah, but it was way harder. <laughs> I just, man, it, like I'm a huge proponent of school. My wife is a, is a double master's level um, teacher. And I mean, she she's worked her whole life to get where she is. And um, she's extremely smart and extremely well ed- educated. And she's worked hard on that way. Whereas I've had to grind, like grind more. And I don't know which one's easier, but I find that uh, sometimes the documentation on the wall especially with upper management gives you a lot more credibility. For me, I I've had to go into most of my interviews and, and basically win someone over. And, and at the end of it, you're more or less saying like, look, you will be the best decision you'll ever make if you give me a chance. But I know there's three other people standing outside this door who have a beautiful education and a beautiful document that they can hang on the wall, but you need to give it to me. And, and I mean, if you only got an hour, to convince people you don't know of that, that's difficult and it doesn't always work. So, Yeah, I was going to say um, that your piece of advice was, do you think it was more about the paper or do you think it was more about patience? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Patience is probably not my strong suit. And if you ask my friends or my wife, but um, yeah, I would have learned a lot by, by staying there. I, uh, patience and just perseverance. I mean, really when I, when I think back on it now, like there's just silliness, like, I mean, you know, but, it, but it was, the, you know, when you're, when you start college, it's your first real taste of freedom and I was, I was a good kid and, you know, grew up on the farm and, and worked hard and I'd never really been able to make my own choices. So that was it. Little taste of freedom. <laughs> Should have never been given that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, what's, you know, you learn from it and hopefully then people listening to this will learn from you. So there you go. And that's helped me going forward. I mean, I, I understand most of the folks I work with have had a difficult path to where they've got to as well. And I know a lot of them know me, you know, and then they kind of, I don't hide my past and the poor decisions that I've made as far as education wise. And, and I think it actually helps because they're kind of like, man, if that guy did it. Yeah. In a sense, they're, they're seeing someone modeling moving up, but also knowing that you do actually understand you're, you haven't come in with an academic or theoretical point of view. You really do understand where they're coming from as well. And I will say that I'm a bit of a, like a information junkie. I, I spend every day and every night researching and, and, and modeling and, and trying to find best practices and, and trying something and designing a program and then changing it. And I probably, done the you know the equivalent of 10 courses if i had a, if i had a stayed at it just just an extra work that that probably would have been a lot easier had i have had a more formal education or, or someone say you know like this is the best way to do it because this is tried tested and true whereas i had to find that out kind of the hard way so so it's tool time let's get practical this is where i ask our guests for their best most practical tips or resources for safety managers looking to improve their work relationships and their core skills. So this could be a book, it could be a concept, a website, anything that falls under resource. Yeah, I, I'm just going to stick with people. I find that what you need what and what's worked for me, I, I had some really good mentors. I worked with some guys in transportation. Um, one of my old bosses, David, was an incredible risk manager and um, I spent a lot of time watching how he did his job and how he interacted with folks. And that's that's the biggest tool that you can do is is sit back, watch someone who knows what they're doing or, or maybe doesn't and try and find a practice. I mean, there's a lot of really good people who, who really know what they're doing. And, and if we can kind of watch and learn, I think that's that's probably the best thing that you can do. I mean, for for anyone wanting to do this job, it is it is hard. I mean, the last the last two years have been difficult. I mean, when 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 COVID started, we were the company I was with is an international transportation company, so we traveled all over Canada, the United States, and um, Florida was getting hammered pretty hard with COVID right off the bat. Uh, there was a ton of people dying, and I can remember guys coming into my office and be like, "Joel, man, like I'm, I'm, I can't go to Florida. I can't." You know, I got young kids, whatever, grandparents, whatever, and and, and I'm going to get COVID and die and I'm going to kill them. And it was, we didn't know. No one knew what what the deal was back then. And we sent them, you know, I had had to sit there and say, listen, guys, you know, we we haul food. It's an essential service. That's all we haul is food. We bring it from, you know, we bring fruits and vegetables and stuff from the United States and back to Canada. And 
I need you to go Canada. You know, the people need you to go. And man, I, I like that. Nothing I could have ever done prepared to me for, for, for that, those conversations, you know, like, like when you leave, you just sit there and you're like, man, did I just send someone to their death? Like, like we didn't know. Right? And that was heavy. Like that was tough. So. Yeah. Harkening back to when we really didn't know very much and, uh, you know, we didn't have vaccines, we didn't have tools or information. So you were talking about mentors. Would you recommend, I actually don't know if there are a lot of sort of formal mentorship programs in the safety industry. I know there are, they exist sort of in a lot of knowledge work industries, but would you recommend just like actually finding a safety manager and talking to them and making it explicit or is it just more about watching and learning? 100% recommend finding someone. Um, I don't think there's too many people out there who get dropped into this role with zero training. I mean, even if you go to school and, and get a degree, I would think or I would hope that there's still some element of, you know, on the job training or, or, or working with someone. And I think that's where you need to focus and learn. I mean, that's, that's probably, I mean, like you go to school, you learn a lot of the formal stuff, but that, that the soft skills, like what I'm talking about today is that's where you're going to get them. And you're either going to see how it's done right or see how it's done wrong. And, uh, and hopefully be able to adjust for yourself. But yeah, I a hundred percent recommend it. Like I said, Dave, Dave to me was, was awesome. I mean, he's retired now. Um, He's traveling around the United States in a, in a brand new RV right now where it's warm. And, uh, you, know, you know, we still talk on a daily basis. Well, I'll bounce stuff off him, you know, odd situations. And, and he's my first call, right? So it's nice to have that relationship and be able to do that. Do you think these human skills are learnable? I mean, they are. To what degree do you think that? Because we all know people who we say, you know, they're not really a people person. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, it's not teachable. I can tell you that. It's because uh, we have seen it. I, I find that you you could, I don't know, that's such a tough one. I I think you have it or you don't. But it's going to define what type of a of a leader you are, really. If, I find if you don't have the, the strong human skills, you're probably going to be more of a top-down manager. Because it's, it's easier to just drop that to a subordinate and then have them keep dropping that down. And I think if you have more of the soft skills, you're probably going to be a more immersive person and and just work it more yourself, right? Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, you work where your strength is, right? Yeah, that's basically it, yeah. So do you have any final thoughts or anything you want to share? I'm doing this now at this group for a year and, and now I'm starting to get guys kind of reach out to me and they're like, Hey man, you know, are you looking for someone to work with you or are you looking for someone to kind of join your team? And, and I'm not yet. I mean, we're not far away from that hopefully, but I think uh, it's, it, for me, that's kind of a badge of honor. Cause that means that people are kind of, well, one of two things, either they've heard about free meals, which is, <laughs> which is, you know, it's, it's not bad, I must say, uh, or, or um, they actually think that you're making a difference. And that's, uh, that to me kind of seems like if someone wants to work with you, like they're asking to work with you, they probably think that you're worthwhile working with, which to me is, is huge. I mean, I've had, I've had several different folks reach out to me and they're like, you know, when you're looking for someone, I'd like to be that person, which is, which is really cool. Right. Like that's, that's kind of the, the penultimate thing. Like that's what I'm searching for. Absolutely. Although the question on everyone's mind really is how much lobster are in these free meals? 
There's a lot. Yeah. I mean, obviously here, here on the East coast, those things just run wild, right? And sometimes there's traffic jams, which just lobsters run around, run around on the, on the highway. Yeah. We, uh, you know, I'm not a lobster person. I like steak. I don't know. Oh man. Everybody out here just eats steak. We don't like lobster. That's so funny. Cause I, I always joke, I grew up in Alberta and I always joke that I got kicked out cause I didn't particularly like steak. <laughs> Yeah, man, that's what it's all about. Yeah, we we feed the uh, lobster to the tourists when they come here in the summer. That's it. Yeah. Well, I have eaten. <laughs> yes, I have eaten lobster as a tourist in Nova Scotia in the summer. <laughs> so there you go. You get out to Halls Harbor. There's a there's a big lobster pound in Peggy's Cove there and stuff. It's a you know half hour from where I'm at, and it's uh, it's definitely uh, this time of year. It's nice. It gets a little little busy in the summer, but uh, we love seeing our tourists come down. You know, it's uh, it's pretty massive. Oh, I've been to Peggy's Cove. It's beautiful and dangerous. Yeah, the Black Rocks. If you're not paying yeah. attention. Yeah. <laughs> Every year, a couple of people get uh, get a little too close and have to go out and pick them out of the ocean. And the downside with, with the Atlantic Ocean is it doesn't get warm. Like we have a lot of really nice beaches that no one swims at because it's uh, it's cold all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, here way over on the West Coast, we unfortunately have people uh, – storm watchers who uh, tend to get a little too close in the, in the winter and those wild uh, storms. So where can our listeners find you on the web? I'm pretty well every social. I mean, it's easy. Um, obviously, uh, LinkedIn and stuff. I think we, we matched up here before, um, you know, all, all the, the Facebook, Instagram, all that sort of good stuff. I'm pretty, pretty easy to find, but LinkedIn's probably the easiest. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. It was great talking to you. I really enjoyed it. It was nice to chat. Safety Labs is created by Slice, the only safety knife on the market with a finger-friendly blade. Find us at sliceproducts.com. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>